The following message was given by Shelby Murphy on Sunday, December 31st at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody, and Happy New Year's Eve. Is that a thing? Uh, my name is Shelby, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of ending our time, not only in 2023 today, but uh, ending our time in Hebrews um, today. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to Hebrews 13. We're going to be there uh, all morning. And if you do have something to write with, I'll have lots of um, uh, reflection questions for you. Uh, today, considering we're moving into the new year, always a good time to look back and to look forward. I read an article um, this past week that said today might set a new record for weddings in Vegas, and not just because it's New Year's Eve. Anyone want to guess why? I heard it over here. It's the date. Today is one two three one two three. So um, uh, apparently these specialty dates are popular for weddings in Vegas. Who knew? Uh, So for some, today is a happy occasion. Uh, New Year's Eve can be a celebration of movement, of progress, of optimism, of new beginnings. Um, It's the beginning of a new year. But for others, um, I've noticed this especially as I get older, Uh, New Year's Eve is simply a reminder of all that didn't happen last year. It's a marker for for years gone by, and there are a lot more years gone by for me now. Um, It's a reminder of um, forgotten forgotten resolutions, dashed possibilities, unchanged habits, um, daunting daunting realities. So, So it seems fitting or providential. Um that Hebrews 13 falls on us today. As this chapter not only allows us to reflect back um, on everything that came before it in Hebrews, but to actually uh, reflect uh, on our lives in light of the myriad of commands that come our way in this chapter. So here's what I'd like to do this last day of 2023. Uh, I'm gonna do my best to help us understand what we just heard read giving us some prompts uh, to not only reflect back over 2023, but to also pray towards 2024, giving you some of the same um, uh, reflection questions that I'm considering as I read and reflect on this text. So so at first, listen, I realize Hebrews 13 kind of just feels like a grab bag of commands, like a sentence with like a bunch of punctuation marks at the end of it. And it may not exactly be clear what they all have to do with one another or or what they have to do with everything that's come before them. It's easy to look at this book and think that the author has already said what he really wanted to say in chapters 1 through 12. And now he's just kind of rambling a little bit as he closes, rattling off just just some good rules for life. But the very practical moral instruction of this chapter is intimately connected to everything that's come before it. Even though the argument of this book can at times be complex, the basic message can be summarized pretty simply. 
Since Jesus is better, hold fast to him. Since Jesus is better, run with endurance the race set before you, looking to him. We are not God's best self-revelation. Jesus is. He's the best priest enabling us to draw near to God. He's the best sacrifice taking for all who believe our sins and their punishment away forever. He's, he's better than anything else we could trust in or live for. So for the actual and literal love of God, keep going with Jesus. Don't go back to don't go back to Judaism, which would have been the temptation of, of these Hebrews. Don't turn to anything else for that matter. Stick with Jesus all the way to the end. That's what Hebrews has been about. And the question that keeps popping back up each week that we have to keep addressing is how? How do we persevere? How do we endure? What does this race look like right here, right now, in real life? This notion that we all need a spiritual checklist to complete each day is not just a 21st century problem. Just tell me what I need to do. And as the author approaches the end of this letter, he does just that. He tells them what to do. And really, ever since chapter um, uh, 11, our author has been sketching out the life that flows from all the truths we've encountered so far in this book. And here in chapter 13, it all begins to take shape for us. Like a good Bob Ross painting, the happy little trees are getting ready to show up for us and make it very clear. So we know from chapter 11 that the race we are running looks like living by faith in the midst of some very literal, unseen realities. Chapter 12 told us that this race requires us to continuously be laying aside sin and looking to Jesus. But even as we saw back in Proverbs, it's, it's just natural for us to wonder what this all looks like day to day. And the author tells us pretty explicitly what this looks like. It looks like living a life that is pleasing to God. It actually says it twice in this chapter. Look at verse 16 real quick. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are what? Pleasing to God. Verse 21. May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that what? which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus. So, Hebrews 13, big picture. Our lives should be lived sacrificially in a way that is pleasing to God. This means actively working in our, God actively working in our day-to-day activity, working in the ordinary and the mundane stuff of our lives. All this is part of running with endurance. It's all part of a life of faith, a life that has been saved by God through Jesus Christ. I think we're all good with that. Okay, then. Again, we're at the same question. What does this look like? 
What are these good things that please God, as we just read in verse 21? So with our remaining time, I want to do my best to summarize the three things God tells us here are good things that please him. Giving us the opportunity to reflect back on this last year to see how we did with, the, with, with these things. Where do we need to take a moment to repent from not being obedient to the commands of Scripture here? How can we resolve in this new year to do better with these commands from, from God's Word? And the three areas I want to focus on today are we please God with our love for one another, we please God with our loyalty to what we've received. And we please God when we look to him to keep us faithful. So we have our love, our loyalty, and what we look to. So let's get going. Let's jump in. First, we please God with our love for one another. Right out of the gate, look at verse 1. Let's read it. Let brotherly love continue. I hate to break it to some of you, but the Christian Rambo trope is a complete myth. You cannot run this Christian race alone. You can't run it by yourself. A more modern reading, a more modern proverb from our own Chris Sirocco goes like this. He who grows alone grows weird. We don't gather like this because it's the most efficient way to uh, dispense religion to lots of people at once. We gather like this because through faith in Jesus, we have become a family. Way back in chapter 2, we were told that Jesus died to bring many sons to glory. God gave his only son so that he could have many sons and daughters. Many who would become the heirs of his, of his great promises. And all who are sons and daughters of God through faith are brothers and sisters of one another. Every Christian's future is a community. And as a quick, as a quick um, uh, aside, let me just lob this grenade out there. I know, I know there have been varying um, uh, opinions offered even from this pulpit, but let me give you the definitive answer. The series finale of Lost is one of the best finales of all time. It wasn't about one person being saved and moving on to the afterlife. It was about a community being saved together, just like we see here. I can feel the bile building up in, in some of you now. You've already started crafting your, your um, rebuttal emails to me. Um, so I will move on. Um, but what we're reminded of here is that we're all running towards the city of God, which is going to be a city full of, I'm sorry to say, other people, <laughs> other Christians, all present together in one community. Yes, we are pilgrims, 
but we are pilgrims traveling together through the wilderness of this world, encouraging one another to persevere until we all come to the promised land. Christians are a large extended family. This local church is just your um, immediate family. And so right out of the gate, as he summarizes everything that has come before, he tells us that we must love one another with brotherly love. And he knows that this love is going to be hard and challenging at times. Because guess what? People are hard and challenging at times. But we must continue to love one another. And he then goes on to actually show us what this love for one another actually looks like. In these first six verses, he gives us several instructions about loving one another. One, love looks like hospitality. Right there in verse two. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. If every Christian is your brother or sister, it means that you have family members who are strangers to you. And your responsibility for brotherly love isn't restricted to Christians you know, or maybe more importantly, Christians you like. You have a responsibility even to brothers and sisters who are strangers to you. And this responsibility is called hospitality. It's a responsibility to meet one another's needs. Even if you don't know one another. Even if they can never pay you back. It's a call to be generous with what you have simply because you're family. Now, hospitality has many expressions. It, it could be a meal when someone has a baby to befriending someone new here on Sunday morning. But it all starts with this conviction. All I have has been generously entrusted to me by God so that I may use it generously for others. What I have is not just for my good, but it's also for the good of those that God gives me the opportunity to bless. That includes my money. That includes my time. It includes my home. It's a conviction that my home is not a refuge from people. Yes, my house should be a place of rest, but it is also an instrument to use for the good of people. The text even says you might be surprised who you're caring for. Some might be, some might be angels. He's, he, he, the author is making a reference here to um, Genesis 18 when, when Abraham provided a meal for three strangers. Two of them turned out to be angels. One of them turned out to be the Lord himself. So... Who knows who you're loving when you love a stranger? So, so this love for one another looks like hospitality. It also looks like sympathy. Verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Part of brotherly love is entering into one another's sufferings. 
Our hearts should not be closed off from one another any more than our homes should be. And if one brother or sister suffers, the whole church should feel it. And what is immediately in view here in this text by these specific Hebrew Christians is the suffering they were experiencing because of their faith. Some of these Hebrew Christians were in prison because of their proclamation of Jesus. This is the specific mistreatment they were um, uh, experiencing uh, right here in this text. And um, let me be the bearer of bad news this morning. The effects of opposition to the good news of Jesus does not fall evenly on the church. We have it relatively easy here in, here in um, America. Those who come to trust in Christ in, in, in Pakistan or India or China or even parts of Europe will have a very different experience of opposition than we will. Even just think about the people in this room with all of our different workplaces, all of our different family situations, means that we will all have different experiences of opposition to belonging to Jesus. And because of this, we need to care for one another. We need to show brotherly love to one another. We can't make our experience of opposition even across the board but we can care for those in particular difficulties among us. We can pray for persecuted Christians around the world. And, and, and honestly, in, in today's cultural climate, it's not too hard to imagine people in this congregation losing their jobs or having to quit because what is expected of them is incompatible with the truth of God. And hopefully, the rest of us will respond with both sympathy and hospitality, providing for one another whatever is needed out of brotherly love. Let's keep going. This love for one another also looks like sexual purity. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and um, uh, adulterous. I promise not to be um, explicit here because of all the ears in the room. But I don't care if you're married, single, a teenager, or younger. One of the main barriers to brotherly love is self-love, is selfishness. And one of the most common expressions of selfishness is sexual immorality. Please hear me today. God made us sexual beings, men and women. And he created a glorious sandbox for sexual expression that's founded on self-giving love. God designed sex to operate inside marriage, a lifelong union of one man and one woman in which they give to one another. Not just their bodies, but their whole selves. And God designed it that way so that marriage would be a picture of the self-giving love between Christ and his church. 
Jesus gave himself for us entirely on the cross, and we give ourselves entirely to him through faith. So we want to hold marriage in honor because it's a picture of the gospel. Now, holding marriage in honor doesn't mean considering marriage the only honorable way to live. The New Testament is quite clear. It sees great value in an unmarried life fully devoted to God. But God calls all of us to honor marriage because we're all tempted. We're all tempted. Married and single folks, old and young alike, we're all tempted to make sexuality about self-love rather than self-giving. Adultery seeks self-satisfaction at the cost of breaking a sacred promise. Sex outside of marriage seeks self-satisfaction without self-giving, without commitment, without promise. If you're looking at things you're not supposed to be looking at, you're seeking to satisfy yourself uh, with something that can give you nothing and you give it nothing. All sexual sin is selfish, which dishonors both marriage and the gospel of which marriage is a picture. And all sexual sin leads to judgment. As we just read, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Those who persevere in sexual immorality without repentance, who just blindly keep going down that road of self-love and selfishness, show that they are not God's sons and daughters. They don't have new hearts. And if you're going down that road today, please hear me. Stop. Stop right here today. Turn around and come back to Jesus for forgiveness and restoration. Look, honoring marriage is much more than contending for a biblical definition for it in the public square. It's real. It has real world effects on us personally and those around us. It affects all of us. And every single one of us wrestles with this command every day. How have you honored this command this past year? Is there some things you need to turn from in confession and repentance today? And so this last instruction um, uh, about loving one another is that it looks like contentment. Verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear What command do to me? If one of the dangers to brotherly love is self-love, another is love of money. Now, what immediately comes to your mind when you think of love of money? For me, it's some sort of, you know, miserliness, hoarding. Um, Instead of giving, it's, it's Scrooge McDuck, you know, swimming through his vaults of gold. That's all I think of when I think of love of money. Um, But interestingly enough, He gives two examples of love of money in these verses that we probably don't expect. One is in verse 5. 
Be content with what you have. Yes, discontent is a form of love of money. It's the inability to be happy unless you get more than you have. So it's not a love for the money you have. It's a what? It's a love for the money you don't have. And the other example we're given here is in verse 6. I will not fear. Fear is an example of love of money. Just think about it in, in your own life, your own situations. When you love money, you put your trust in it, and you fear what's going to happen if you lose it. You displace God as the source of your contentment and your refuge from fear. You put money in God's place. So the instruction here isn't just to be more generous, but to not lose sight of the God who provides for us. The, the, the author is actually reminding them of God's promise to Joshua whenever he um, uh, succeeded um, um, uh, Moses. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. It says here in Joshua 1.5, I will not leave you or forsake you. Guys, our money cannot make that same promise. Look, my money leaves me and forsakes me multiple times a day. I'm sure it's no different for, for you. But the God who made all things, who owns all things, who can do as he pleases with all things, says to every one of us today, I will never leave you or forsake you. We will never find ourselves without a helper in the coming year. We will never find ourselves without a father to run to. But part of the fear that these Hebrews were tempted to was a fear of persecution. I mean, think back to their story. Their property had already been plundered at least once, as we were told back in chapter 10. What if it happened again? What if they lose their income? What if they lose their homes? Even if it comes to all of that, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Our safety, you've heard it before, our safety does not come from savings. Our security does not come from stuff. The holiday season should just be a continual reminder of this. And part of our love and care for one another as we walk through this wilderness is to remind one another, God makes us happy. God makes you happy. God makes you safe. God's not going to leave us. Our eternal hope and faith isn't in the material, but it's in things we haven't seen and can't see. Do you believe that? Can you look back over the past year and say you truly believe that? How might 2024 look different if you truly believed these truths? Because we need to believe these truths enough to be generous towards one another. 
so that we can meet one another's needs. That the contentment he calls for, uh, calls us for in verse five, enables the generosity he calls us to in verses in th- two and three. So what does this race look like? It looks like pleasing God with our love for one another. Just a few questions to um, uh, reflect on. How have you experienced God's love for you through other followers of Jesus this past year? Think back to what you've received. What are some practical ways you could show generosity to people in your life who are in need, maybe in the coming year? How has your commitment to sexual purity impacted those around you? In what areas of your life are you most tempted to be less than content with what you have? And how has contentment or a lack of it with what you have impacted those around you? Just some questions to consider as we move into the new year, as we reflect back on our lives this past year. Okay, second, we please God with our loyalty to what we have received. Every Christian is the recipient of something passed down from those who've gone before them. We've received teaching about God um, from from those before us, truth about God, encouragement in God. In addition, we've also received examples of how to live this Christian life, a way of life built upon those teachings. And our text tells us here that God is pleased whenever we remain loyal to that teaching and way of life. That's what verse 7 to 17 are all about. Look at verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of of their way of life and imitate their faith. We've all received an inheritance from those Christians in our past and loyalty looks like imitating their faith. We can all probably think of many people in our past who who spoke the word of God to us, who told us what the Bible says about Jesus. Parents, friends, maybe youth leaders or campus ministers. Yes, we should remember and imitate them, but the word leaders here actually means those who have authority. And it's speaking about church leaders specifically, and specifically from there, pastors and elders. He's pointing the Hebrews back to the previous generation of Leaders, which might have been the first generation of Christian leaders um, uh, among them, especially given how quickly this letter was written after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He, he's, he's saying to them, look back on their whole lives and consider the outcome of their life. Consider what came out of their life. Consider the fruit they bore. How over time they became more and more like Jesus. Consider the impact they had on you and others. The lives that were changed through their faithful teaching, isn't that what you want? 
to make a difference in someone's life, these pastors had that outcome on people's lives because they lived by faith. So he's telling them to imitate their faith. And even though these people are gone, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is still just as worthy of your trust as he was for those pastors who have finished the race. He's just as faithful. He's just as strong. He's just as present now for you as he was for them. So we please God by our loyalty to the example of faith we've received and to the teachings that we have received. Look at verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. What he is simply saying here, without delving into the weeds of this verse, is that salvation comes by believing specific truths. The life we're called to grow, we're, the life we're called to grows out of specific truths. And we have a responsibility to hold firmly to that truth and to make sure it's passed along faithfully to the next generation. We have a responsibility to not be led away by strange teachings. It, it appears that these Hebrew Christians were vulnerable to a teaching that we really don't have a complete picture of, but it seems to deal with food. And perhaps some perceived spiritual heart strengthening benefit that comes from them. And I honestly don't know what this says about me. But every time I read this passage, I immediately think of a movie that's become a regular viewing in our house, Nacho Libre. <laughs> I can't tell you why. Again, I don't know what this says about me. And for those poor souls out here who haven't yet seen this classic... It's the story of a Catholic priest who is trying to increase his wrestling prowess. And in one scene in particular, he is told that he can gain special eagle powers in the ring if he eats an eagle's egg. It's ridiculous. I get it. And it proves to be ridiculous. But this is the first thing I think of reading this passage. These eagle eggs and those special eagle powers. Now, the specific food in view here is probably not eagle eggs, um, but most likely the meat of animals that were sacrificed in the temple. There's actually a hint of that in, in the next verse, in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So regardless of this specific controversy or whatever foods uh, we're being singled out here. The writer doesn't want them to be led astray to think that what their heart needs, what their inner self needs, comes from food. Listen to verse 9 again. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by what? By the favor of God towards all who trust Christ. Now, again, the argument in these verses is a little complex, but the main point is we can't look to both food and Christ for our spiritual strength. We have to choose. And what he says is meant to persuade us to stick with Christ. Uh, sorry, a little background is going to be helpful here. In the law, 
One of the ways that God provided for his priests was that for many of the sacrifices they made in the temple, some portion was set aside for them to eat. Think about it. These priests didn't work in the fields. They weren't farmers. They worked in the temple. So this was how they got food. This was actually God's kindness on them. But the point, the author points out that they couldn't, the author points out here that they could not eat the greatest sacrifice, the annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement when the high priest took blood into the most holy place and secured the forgiveness for all the people's sin. Verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. These animals weren't eaten They were taken outside of the camp, outside of the city, and they were burned to a place set aside as unclean, for unclean and for unholy things. So next, the author points out that Jesus' sacrifice is just like that sacrifice. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, just like the animals whose blood brought forgiveness for the people, just like their bodies were taken outside the city, Jesus went outside the city to suffer and die for us. He went to an unholy place and was treated as unholy on the cross to make us holy, to cleanse us from sin. He was put out so that we might be brought in. And with all that in mind, now go back and read verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What altar do we have? We have the cross. He's saying you can either look to special foods to strengthen you, to eagles' eggs and their special eagle powers, or you can look to the grace of Jesus that that was secured through the cross. You can be devoted to the temple, Or you can go to Jesus. But if you're devoted to the temple, if you're devoted to foods, if you're devoted to all of this Old Testament stuff, you have no right to this. You have to leave it all behind. You have to go outside the city. You have to go to Jesus for grace. Verse 13, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Jesus was rejected, and so will we if we follow him. We will be treated as unclean, as unwanted, as belonging outside the camp, but if we go to him, we'll have something that everyone else won't, forgiveness forever through faith in Christ. Plus, this isn't the place that we want to belong anyway, right here. Look at verse 14. For here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So what he's calling us to here is a loyalty to the gospel that we've received. Even if you get excluded or mistreated for it. If Jesus is outside the camp, then let's go to him outside the camp. Come what may. Look, I, I need to hear this pretty regularly. 
If you're a new Christian, it's good for you to know this. If you're a kid or teenager this morning, you need to know this as well. Because you're going to need to decide between following Jesus and having everybody else's approval. Following Jesus probably gets you criticized and made fun of. And what of all, and what's, and what all of Hebrews has been telling us, what Mark and Ray and Tim have been telling us, and what I'm telling you now, is that it's all worth it. Decide right now that following Jesus is worth it. Decide now to put your focus on all that you have because of what Jesus did. And if we really get what Jesus has done, the fruit of that is verse 15. Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Jesus died to make us holy. He sacrificed himself so we can have a relationship with God. And just like those Old Testament priests made a sacrifice, we now are called to make a sacrifice, acknowledging his name, openly identifying with him, and then sharing what we have. Both of these are sacrifices that are going to cost you. It might be your reputation. It might be a smaller checking account balance. But he says that such sacrifices are worth it because they please God. Now, the last kind of loyalty he speaks about in this chapter is to their current leaders, their current pastor and elders. Verse 17 Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If you look a little bit ahead to verse 20 real quick, the author calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. And one of the ways the great shepherd shepherds is that he deputizes some sheep to serve as under-shepherds as pastors, elders, to watch over the rest, uh, to make sure that they stay spiritually healthy, feeding them with God's word, encouraging them in the right direction, gently correcting them if they swerve off course. And he calls the rest of the sheep to obey and submit to those leaders. And look, I get it. This is a hard word. Hard word to hear. It's a hard word for me to stand up here and read. It's not always easy for us to absorb this. It's not easy for me this morning to read it and even to hear it. We all value our independence. We all value our privacy. No one here is excited about the idea of leaders coming to raise concerns with us about how we're living. We're not excited about being called to obey leaders we don't always agree with. But this type of involvement actually by our leaders in our lives, it actually shouldn't actually be a surprise for us at this point in Hebrews. Because this is the sort of thing Christians are to be doing with one another all the time. 
In chapter 3, he told us to exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In chapter 10, he called us all to stir up one another to love and good works. That phrase literally means to irritate one another to godliness. How are you irritating others around you to godliness? We're all to be involved in one another's lives, but some of us can't get past this call to obey. Again, I get it. But there are, some important, there are some important qualifiers to this call to obey. As we just read, we're not called to obey leaders who are leading us away from the gospel. As we just read in verse 9, our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus and we're to obey and submit to leaders who are showing us the way to follow him. And I hope you know this. But it bears repeating, if the elders of this church start moving away from the gospel, away from godliness, you have a responsibility to correct us by not following us into error. Furthermore, even the leaders are accountable. The leaders submit to one another and ultimately they submit to God. The author of this letter says they will have to give an account. Leaders are going to be judged by God for the faithfulness of their leading. And we elders can probably not remind ourselves of this too often. So these safeguards are really important. But yet the command remains, obey your leaders and submit to them. And again, please hear me. God means this for our collective good. He says that when it's done well, it's a joy for the leaders. And it's to the advantage of the whole church. Leaders are one of the means God uses to keep us all running the race. And let me just say, as one of your leaders, thank you for making leadership here a joy. Please keep praying for us that we would teach and live in a way that's worthy of being followed. So a few questions to reflect on. Who is a faithful leader you respect? What would it look like for you to better imitate their faith in the coming year? Are there ways you find it hard to obey and submit to your church leaders? If so, why? What conversations might you need to have to better follow these commands in Hebrews? So we please God with our love for one another. We please God with our loyalty to what we've received. And finally, we please God when we look to him to keep us faithful. I will begin to end here. And it's fitting since we are at probably one of the greatest benedictions in the whole Bible. Um, and, and all I really want to point out here is that the author concludes this extended series of exhortations with prayer. He looks to God and he asks others to pray for him. Verse 18. Pray for us. 
For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, to pray for us, in order that I may be restored to you sooner. He recognizes that all of his plans are subject to God's will. So he asked them to pray. And then he expresses his prayer for them. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He just spent the entire chapter telling them how to please God. And now he prays that God would work in them that which is pleasing in his sight. He recognizes that even though our effort is required, our effort by itself is insufficient unless God works in us. God is pleased when instead of just operating in our own strength, we look to him to keep us faithful. What are those areas in your life where you lean on your own strength? What would submitting those to God look like in the new year? And these, these two little verses are a good way for us to pray for and reflect on 2024. As a new year dawns tomorrow, no one in here has any idea what lies ahead for us. Your days are going to unfold quite differently from, from how you've planned them, for how, how you're thinking about them right now. And we will be reminded probably quite often of just how little control we have in this life. But if you are a son or daughter of God, you are given precious promises here that not only will help make sense of life's interruptions and sorrows, but also fill us with greater joy and purpose then we can even begin to imagine. So a few things to keep in mind for 2024 with Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. As we're told, God is a God of peace. As we confess every week, we are not a naturally peaceful people. We are born, born into turmoil all manner of anxiety, anger, and self-absorption. But with God, we can experience true shalom, a well-being of both body and soul. Second, God keeps his promises. As we've read this entire book, he has made good, huge promises to us. And then sign them with the blood of his only son. Can we truly continue to doubt God's goodness to us when he paid the highest price to fulfill such undeserved promises? Jesus is our great shepherd whom God raised from the dead. This means that Jesus has the authority and the power to perfectly protect you this coming year. To perfectly provide for you this coming year. And to perfectly guide you through the wilderness of 2024. 
As we've already read, God gives us everything we need. God is not cheap. He's not unfair. He's not full of unrealistic expectations. Have you ever had someone charge you with a task you were absolutely not equipped for? And then perhaps that same person grew impatient at your incompetence when you asked for more specific help or guidance. Guess what? God is not like that. He beautifully equips us for what he calls us to do, giving us everything we need to do it. And he's going to always outgive you. Second, remember this going to the 24. God is pleased with us. Because God looks at us through Jesus. Our position is secure, permanent. It's indestructible. We may fall flat on our faces 10 times tomorrow. Feel like an utter failure and suffer the deep disappointment of others all on day one of 2024. But because we're in Christ, God delights in us. And our smallest acts of obedience are pleasing in his sight. Finally, Jesus is going to get all the glory. All of this lavish love and goodness and provision doesn't result in us getting a big name. Or a place in history or the praises of the masses. It all crescendos in glory to Jesus and his name becoming famous which is what our hearts are truly made for. How will you be praying for those around you this way in 2024? How can you remind them of these things throughout the year, especially whenever things go sideways? The race set before us is the race of trusting and pleasing God all the way to the end, all the way to our death or Christ's return. And as we run this race, God is pleased by our love for one another. God is pleased when we flee from self-love and love of money and are generous with one another. He's pleased when we're loyal to the truth and the way of life we've received. And he's pleased when we recognize that only he can work any of this in us. And we look to him. Jesus Christ sacrificed his earthly life to give us eternal life, to make us holy, to bring us back to God. And now we get to use our earthly lives as a sacrifice to him, not to appease him, but to please him. Redemption Hill, we respond to Jesus' sacrificial death for us by pleasing God with sacrificial lives. Let's pray together. Father, it is our desire today to live lives that are pleasing to you. We don't want to live for ourselves. We know that's a dead end. We know the best life, the abundant life, is the life where we die to our own desire so that we can live for you. So we want to be living sacrifices in view of your mercies to us. We want to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. 
Thank you that we don't have to do this to be saved, that Jesus has done everything necessary to bring us to you. We, we do this as a response of love to you because you've done so much for us. And so work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Continue to transform us into the image of your dear son for your glory and our good. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Shelby Murphy, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.